<laughs> Yael, thank you for joining us here at Rabbit Hole Stories. Um, I hope you're well. And um, as you probably know, we like to hear people's rabbit hole stories and how they got into Bitcoin, how they discovered Bitcoin, and ultimately why they stayed. So um, thank you for coming on. And uh, hopefully we can go down your Bitcoin rabbit hole with you and see where we end up. So let's spend a couple of minutes getting to know you and um, we go from there. Oh, wow. It's going to be a dark crevice. Um, Let's do it. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. All right. So it's going uh, to be a deep dive, <laughs> deep dive. Uh, I think <laughs> it really goes back to 2012. Um, so it's probably no surprise. I'm one of those um, who are obsessed with Austrian economics, was for a very long time. And naturally, I think in these libertarian circles in Austrian economics, you know, you start talking about alternative monetary systems and then oh, look, there's this new uh, awesome digital coin that's out there that people are using. So 2012, I remember a couple of things. Um, I remember being in Philadelphia. I was working at the Fox uh, local TV station affiliate. Okay. And um, the Occupy movement sprung up. And uh, this was uh, really interesting to me because it's like they were against the bailouts. I was against the bailouts. They were really going on and on about how Wall Street's corrupt. I felt the same. Right. Politicians mm -hmm. are not the answer. I was like, hey, these are my people. So I went down for a couple nights. Um, I think I went just one night sort of as a producer doing interviews. And then I went down another night just on my own talking to people. And we're talking about the Fed. We're talking about Ron Paul, which I was really into at that time. And, you know, just talking about this. And, and there were some like the I would say the, the anarchists, like the far left guys, and some of them had, had brought up Bitcoin as an alternative. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind, of, that's kind of interesting. I've heard of this a little bit and really started to get much more engaged. And a friend of mine, we really got into it, got Coinbase accounts, uh, you know, started trading back and forth. Standard, like a, standard. <laughs> yeah. But then we got our Electrum uh, wallets all downloaded. And, and that was... Um, at the time, I was still living in the States, but I did move to Austria a few months later. And that's when I really started to understand what Bitcoin was for. And I had a need for it, to be frank, because I had my money that used to be in the US. I was working as a journalist there and I had moved um, due to love uh, to the European continent, as one does. And I needed to figure out a way that I could send USD and pay my rent in Euro. And it was really difficult to figure out how to do it. PayPal sucked. Don't even think about doing a wire transfer. Western Union is like, you only do that in, you know, desert dictatorships. So right. the only option that I could find was, was actually using Bitcoin. And mm. what was so cool about it is I could use my, you know, credentials and everything. I could buy Bitcoin in the US, get it in my wallet, and then you know, within three seconds, pop, pop, pop. <laughs> I have confirmation. I mean, back then the mempool was pretty empty. Uh, so, so I could get it like pretty quickly on my side. And then I would go to a, um, I think Nico talked about Bitcoin.de, which is like the German uh, website, mm -hmm. which was peer to peer at that time. And you could just sell and guys would, you know, just use their, the EBON number and then uh, send you the cash. And I started doing that and getting more interested and writing about it. And for me, I saw it as, as something that was going to be much bigger than just sending money from A to B. You know, I kind of saw that there was this network. And of course, I was a very ideologically tinged uh, at that moment because I had read <laughs> in the Fed, I was into the Ron Paul stuff. I had all of the, 
you know, Austrian economists. I had Mises and Hayek had read all the books. Um, I was very much into Friedrich Bastia. I was into this entire idea that, you know, we need to have decentralized networks and communities and uh, economics. And it was then to where I, I just kind of went all in and, you know, I was using it constantly. I was trying to orange pill. Uh, we didn't have that term back then. Uh, orange pill as many people as possible. So that was like around 2013. And then a lot more stuff started getting, <laughs> I guess, in the news because you had a lot of the price spikes. I remember it going to a thousand and that was like a huge deal. And I was really fascinated by the anonymous markets, otherwise known as the dark net and the dark net web markets. I was interested in that. I thought this was the next level of agorism powered by Bitcoin that would allow us not just to sell drugs and do all of this, but also to figure out how to find, you know, basically free marketplaces. I saw it as this could be the free market in real time using digital currency in the internet. And I, you know, basically I was working at that point as sort of a libertarian organizer, you know, for young people and speaking at universities and doing conferences. And I, and I have the the video that I sent you, Joel, of uh, my speech in, in Vienna in 2013. Um, that was called The Promise of Bitcoin and Anonymous Markets. Um, so I wrote about this, um, I think, earlier this year. My mistake was that I put way too much on the anonymous markets. I thought this would take off much more. And um, for Bitcoin, it's like I understood it. I had researched everything. I was following all the mailing lists. Um, I just had this very free market mentality that, well, you know, if Bitcoin sucks at some point, some other currency will just be better. But we didn't really have all these alternatives. You know, Ethereum had just started up and there weren't really many others. So it was really in doing that and then getting stories. Um, you know, as a journalist, I was writing about the first politician who accepted Bitcoin in the US it was actually in Vermont in 2012. Uh, he had accepted it for the state house. And he was just like a computer nerd guy. He had a computer nerd friend and he said, hey, you're running for state house. Why don't you accept Bitcoin? And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So it was cool to kind of meet him, talk to others. And then um, I actually got in touch with Amir Taki, uh, who was one of the, he wasn't like one of the very first developers, but he was part of like that second generation. And he wanted to organize a conference in Vienna where I was living. And with the Libertarian Student Group and like with the interest that I had, I was like, oh, this is awesome. We cooked up this entire proposal. We said, let's do this. And then basically, like, we were finalizing the date for the first Bitcoin conference in Vienna. This is Amazing. in 2013. And then basically, he buggered off and said, I, I found a, a commune <laughs> in Spain, <laughs> yeah. some kind of anarchist group. He buggered off and he's like, ah, yeah, conference is canceled. So isn't he fighting that faded with like the army now or something or was that or do you have someone else? In oh, mind? no, he was. And yeah. um, I, I wanted to be sure I was fresh on this. Um, so he actually does have a new project. Uh, I think it's called DarkFi. So he's still very much into privacy okay. and things like that. Um, it's mm, not necessarily mm. a new token. It's supposed to be another protocol that doesn't have a token. It's a very strange thing, but he's still very much into that. But yeah, he went to go fight the uh, he, he was in Iraq you know, oh, fighting really? with these guys. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, but he was wow, on his own, okay. right? He did not join the British military. <laughs> 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 and, uh, right, right. Yeah, he kind of fought it, on, he fought it on his own. He was helping them a lot with hacking and, and cyber hacking and stuff. So yeah, getting, it, getting into that stuff a lot more. And then you had WikiLeaks, you know, that was coming up. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was an American expat 
French Canadian American expat. I was really interested in this stuff. I was still commenting a lot on what was happening in the US and just seeing the pressure that WikiLeaks was put under and then using Bitcoin and then the arguments about whether we should use it or not. Right. And you know, I was never I was never one to say Bitcoin is it, but I thought it was a great tool, which I I still think is I believe mm-hmm. the more correct way to view it. I'm I don't I shy from um maximalist you know, I think Joette mm-hmm. is probably the same way. Only because, you know, I'm in it for the I'm in it for the freedom for the privacy. You know, the freedom go up yeah. stuff. Yeah, me too. And and when when all of that started with WikiLeaks and there are all kinds of, you know, argumentations, it was great. I mean, it was it was fun. And, you know, for many years I would evangelize and talk to people about it. And it was around 2017 when I saw the I, ICO stuff that I started getting really bearish. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I, I had been buying Bitcoin. I hadn't really been selling. Um, you know, I'd used what I got in the US and, you know, for rent and stuff. But I, luckily, I had a cheap rent. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I saw the ICO stuff, and this is a complaint that I had. Um, and I'll go back. Actually, my first Bitcoin transaction in a shop, I was in London in mm. 2014. Uh, I had a blockchain.info was my mobile app. Nice. Let me let me before you say what you bought. I'm either going food and drinks or shrooms, but I'm not sure. Oh, which please, one let it be shrooms. <sighs> Just a cappuccino, mates. Uh, oh, okay. See, I was not following. Yeah, I mean, come on, that's that's what you do. <laughs> and I remember, I remember doing it. It was the first time I had done it, like in person. Right? This is always like a weird thing mm-hmm. you do yourself mm-hmm. or you send it to friends. And I and I do it, and I had no idea about how long block confirmation time for. So I do the thing and I pay for it. And it just says like waiting, waiting. And like the other guy, it it was essentially just a barista who had a Bitcoin wallet too. And Mm -hmm. I sat there for an hour and a half, kept waiting, did confirm. (laughs) And then like by the time my girlfriend at the point was like, yeah, we should definitely probably go see the rest of London. I'm like, "Uh, okay. And I'm like, well, guy, I guess we're good. I mean, I sent the transaction, right? (laughs) Right. And then I, and I left, walked away and it confirmed, I don't know, about an hour later. But, you know, that, that kind of stuff of like actually using it in person was like fun. That was like part of it for me. And then when you see all the ICO stuff, when you see all of the projects and we're starting this and launching and equity and buy this, I, I got I had the problem and I made the mistake again of conflating that with Bitcoin. And I said, this entire thing is just going crazy. And I, I wrote an article about it. It was in Huffington Post. It was like my most read article ever. Um, so it's called bearish on cryptocurrencies or something like, or bearish on Bitcoin. Okay. Um, unfortunately, still available today. Uh, but I, you know, in there, I talk about how you know this is supposed to be about the freedom. This is supposed to be about you know economic decentralization, and mm. we've all been fixated on the price and you know what's happening here and there. Nobody's talking about what this protocol actually does. So I, I had this in the back of my mind. Um, I got married, and uh, weddings are expensive. So I did sell a good amount in uh, 2018 and 19. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Sad day. Um, <laughs> um, but then, I, you know, basically, I, I still had my conviction. I didn't really get too big into altcoins. Um, there were a few that I would bought that, that I thought were very interesting. Um, I still think Monero is very interesting. Uh, we can talk about that later. And, you know, I really was always kind of in the background Bitcoin, but I had no idea that there was this community of Bitcoiners apart from, you know, small things that I would see on the internet. 
And it was really only about 2020 or so when someone was telling me, oh, there's all these podcasts, there's all these things. And I was like, oh, there's other weirdos like me. And, and that's when I started paying attention a bit more to that ecosystem. And, you know, all of my work that I've done so far has been fairly independent of, of Bitcoin. You know, I always wrote about it and interviewed people, but it was never like I was doing anything specifically around Bitcoin. And, you know, basically in the last, I would say, two years, I have gotten more active. I found ways that I can use my job as like a consumer advocate to also advocate for Bitcoin and for people to use Bitcoin, helping to write policies, helping to educate lawmakers, writing more and more articles, um, getting many articles rejected from mainstream newspapers. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, and it's been fun. Yeah. And then, um, you know, about earlier this year, we started up this um, Substack, Fix the Money with Nico Yilk, whom you've had on. And yeah, you know, it's been a great outlet. is great. I've I've had a good look at it. It's it's um a great resource of information. So anyone listening, fixthemoney.net, uh, check it out. It's it's fascinating stuff. Cheers. Yeah, thank thanks for the promo. I'll I'll send you no a worries, Bitcoin bro. payment later. Send me a lightning invoice. <laughs> send me those sats. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can see behind me. I've got my my lightning nodes that are you know going off. Mm -hmm. So nice I started one. really getting into the tech stuff. I think that for me, I did I just didn't know about that. You know, I thought. Everything was mm -hmm. just like a couple of lame mobile wallets and that was it. But then I started mm -hmm. noticing, hey, this is much bigger than Electrum on desktop and blockchain.info. You know, there's this entire self-custodial sphere that exists and people are actually going back to the technology and becoming sovereign. And um, so that really, I think, interested me a lot. And I've been getting a lot more into the privacy stuff. You know, I, I happen to be someone who has been an immigrant many times and has to move across borders and has to you know move money internationally. So I get put on many lists and many flags and I have a lot of restrictions in my freedom. So Bitcoin is something that is important to me as a measure of, of sort of individual freedom. So that that's sort of my long rabbit hole journey. Um, I, I think I have a plethora of articles on my website um, that I've written about Bitcoin going back many years. That's um, and I, I do have one I'm very proud of. 2014, uh, I wrote an article about how El Salvador and Ecuador should adopt Bitcoin as their legal tender um, okay. because they're dollarized countries and it would just be great. Mm, mm. At the time, like people laughed at this, right? And that one, I, I wrote it for um, it was my, my friend Fergus, who was running like a Latin American news website, Pan Am Post. And, you know, got a good amount of traction. It was interesting, but it was just like an idea in the, in the sun. I don't know if I would agree with that today. I don't know if I'm in the Bitcoin as legal tender camp, uh, right. but it was at least something that I was thinking about. And obviously many other people have thought about this and pushed this forward, but uh, just some flashbacks of my writing archive, as it were. So thank you guys for coming, uh, coming down the rabbit hole with me. No, uh, thank you for, for inviting us. And what a fascinating journey. And, uh, and a Bitcoin OG for sure, um, getting into it in 2012. And I'm fascinated, uh, the fact that basically you, you've, you've, it's been, must have been quite a lonely space to be in, uh, early on when there wasn't that much, um, going on in the Bitcoin space. It was still relatively early. Um, and, and being in it for so long, only until recently, you've really started to, um, take advantage of the explosion of new Bitcoiners, uh, on the back of, 2020 and all that kind of stuff um and it's only really coming to a point where you can um, maximize on on 
well, you can really start to see the fruits of your labor. I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming after all these years now, um, these podcasts are popping up, you know, you're, we've got a podcast, you, you're, you're involved in the podcast yourself. So props to you. Well done. My hat goes off to you, um, for doing that. And I'm fascinated because you got into the whole Occupy movement as well, as you mentioned, uh, quite early on. And I've always been quite curious and fascinated about what the atmosphere was like um, around that time. Um, and I know that Margot, we had Margot on last time. She she was part of the Occupy movement as well. Um, can you give us some insight um, into what that was like at that time? So I have two that I visited. So I, I moved from Philadelphia um, to Tampa, to St. Petersburg in Florida. Mm. And I visited both. Um, so interestingly enough, um, very good friend of mine, I won't name him here, but he, he was much more of a, I mean, essentially an admin at Occupy Tampa and he was Austrian economics all the way. He gave lectures on anarcho-capitalism and was trying to teach these young socialists, you know, ways about the markets. So I would say it was a lot of people who questioned centralized authority, but they were likely modern socialists in every way possible. And I even saw the beginnings of what you would consider today wokeism in terms of, you know, using terms like colonization, colonizers, uh, you know, if you're a certain color or you're a certain sexual orientation, you're allowed to speak first. You know, there are all these kind of dynamics within the group that were, I mean, were obviously certainly alien to me. And I'm like, hey, I'm a French Canadian immigrant. I'm somehow on the totem pole, but I, it, it was really fascinating to see that kind of stuff. And, and obviously, ideologically, I'm sort of opposed to that. You know, I take more of an individualist uh, route. So that was, that was kind of interesting. But they were very open to you know, agorist economics, very open to trading. They didn't like the term markets, right? They just like free enterprise. Okay, we'll do free enterprise. We'll do free exchange. We like that. We don't like capitalism. But you know, at that time, we lost the word battle of capitalism a long time ago. So we easily gave that mm. up. Not a big deal. But yeah, mm. I would say it was definitely this uh, big tinge of modern leftism was definitely found in those Occupy circles. Because you point, uh, see it, not, obviously you see it in the Bitcoin space. There's a mixture of different ideologies within um, the Bitcoin space. So you've got people on the right, people on the left, people that are indifferent, etc. And we all seem to be united under Bitcoin. We sort of seem to rally together when there's an attack vector, like the New York Times article recently. Every Bitcoiner rallied around this whole thing and, and got together and sort of um, disassembled the New York Times article. And I imagine it was quite similar there, really, because you're talking about these uh, socialist uh, left-wing people, but they, then you were there as a libertarian as well, and you were there together, united. Would, would that be right in saying that? I think so. I think that you know, there's always been this imagined alliance between progressives and mm. libertarians on various issues, you know, yeah. war on drugs, um, mm. bailouts, you know, being against bailouts, sort of economic independence. So there have always been these things that have held us together. The problem is always the culture war, because the culture war overtakes all of that. And what it does is it sort of bleeds away any of this camaraderie that could normally exist, because then it becomes mm -hmm. about identity and it becomes about this stuff that's about definitions and it's about essentially a kind of hierarchy that, you know, we're supposed to be against hierarchies, but then we impose hierarchies or, you know, all of this stuff is socially determined, right? It's like people coming up with things and 
you know, this income or this color. So I think you, you do have a lot of that that's made it rather ugly. There have been moments where, um, you know, amongst political movements, I'm thinking of some of the anti-war stuff that definitely happened against FISA courts in the US that definitely happened. I know a lot of the online censorship bills in the UK, it's been very similar where you've had this sort of temporary mm-hmm. agreement. Um, again, the war on drugs, something very similar. But unfortunately, we've, we've just gotten all these, these culture wars and the culture wars break that up. They put everybody on guard. And then instead of you know, talking about ways that libertarians could ally with progressives, it becomes with, you know, oh, well, we can't have the government deciding this and that. And I don't know. It's, I feel as if uh, a lot of that has just set us back so much. And I'm not one for thinking that we're going to overcome anything, right? Everything is just a battle. But that has at least given some glimmers of hope through time. And I think Bitcoin does represent that. Um, I obviously came in with the wave of the Austrian economists and you know, people who are really interested in anarcho-capitalist ideas. And you know, for us, it was kind of natural that we've, we even thought, hey, why aren't the Marxists and progressives into this more? It seems like it would jive with their philosophy. I think mm-hmm. they're just... They have not had as many questions they've raised themselves about the monetary structures around us. They have not taken the time to, they're very skeptical about many different government institutions and whether or not they're corrupt. They're just not yet skeptical about the financial system, hegemony of the US dollar or any other currency. And I think that's kind of the next step that we need. Yeah. I mean, I've been at a few um, Occupy movements as well and I've, i'm just thinking if i said it on the pot or after the podcast with um marco um i essentially told my parents that i'm gonna spend a weekend at a friend's house in zurich and i booked a flight with <laughs> with bitcoin and went to london but i got busted by um the um it wasn't called find my back then it was the um where like parents can target their kids phones my parents are very much into like you know see Your where parents our kids are stalking you yeah and I, yeah, I didn't think of turning that shit off. So they found out <laughs> that I was at Heathrow Airport at like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning. One How point, old were you um, at this point? What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. 16? <laughs> I was pretty much sure that the, the, um, the, the guy working at the border, because back then that was like a weird time. They would check people in and out of Switzerland, even though we had still had the Schengen um, deals and stuff. And he sort of saw my age and was like, what are you doing as a 16-year-old in London? I was like, oh, you know, there's this thing called the Occupy movement. And like looking oh, back, I was like, on. you should have just shut yeah. the fuck up and say I'm visiting a friend or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was a miracle that I got in. Um, but I had the same experience. And back then, um, actually still to this day, I always had the political ambition of, well, I don't give a shit because I see negative points in both sides, speaking left and right. And I'm just going to go and see what these people are because it made sense that we shouldn't give money to the corrupt, greedy banksters or that politics must have been an issue with it. Um, and I would definitely say the Occupy European people had same ambitions, maybe a bit more left-leaning because we generally are a bit more left-leanish in Europe. Um, but yeah, definitely. I remember back then I've been... I've been... I've had my touch points with Bitcoin and I got some from a friend. So that's how I was able to like buy the flight. But like I wasn't holding it. I wasn't yet using it. And I remember those being sort of the first things. I was like, okay, you can use it as this and that. Um, but I never got far enough to to like use it every day. And then when like Silk Road happened a couple of months later um, or a couple of years later at that point, um, that's when I was like, oh yeah, I remember. I still need this once and like I used it once. 
Um, but yeah, you brought up a very good point. You came into Bitcoin by using it. It was not a speculative asset you bought at a hundred bucks and you sold it at 10K. You really got it and you're like, hey, I can like forego these weird American European rules in the banking system. Um, to this day, do you think this still has a big impact if you see current topics in the Bitcoin landscape? Because a lot of times, especially on Bitcoin Twitter or Nosta, you sort of see a narrative being pushed. Everyone gets hyped, but then it goes like, well, guys, we actually lose focus of stuff. And I think we should maybe focus more on privacy or nation state adoption, or whatever. Um, do you think that background of yours of actually using it as a currency and seeing a real world value in it um, has sort of crept in and um, also allowed you to maybe let go of these narratives at times? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And one thing about seeing the Bitcoin ecosystem, uh, I hate the term space, so I won't use that. Uh, but looking at the Bitcoin ecosystem, you know, I see a lot of parallels to political movements, to influencers online and stuff. So I've like seen this stuff plenty of times before. You know, you have some conservative influencer person who's out for, um, back then we used to call it, you know, outrage commenting, right? Back in the day. Mm -hmm. And now with uh, the Bitcoin world, it's more like, here's this strange chart that shows that in 95 days, <laughs> you'll have this <laughs> rainbow that, and like that, the only yeah. charts I was ever interested in is like, well, what's the current supply? And like how many transactions per day? Like back, I remember I have that in like my early presentation. That's the only thing I cared about. And like all the other stuff, like I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Um, you look at any of my investing mm -hmm. or retirement accounts, I definitely have no idea, <laughs> right? And I think that that's kind of why Bitcoin is attractive. It's because it stands alone and we don't have to, you know, time it. We don't have mm. to, you know, think about this and then all oh, Saturday and then I got to put a put order or, you know, so you have a lot of that. <laughs> and that stuff to me has never really been interesting because it's, it's always monkeys throwing at dartboards, right? It's not principles. You see it with yeah. the price now. I mean, when it was a 16, 18, whatever, under 20K, everyone was like, oh, you know, accumulate, get to know the basics. And now where it touches 30K again, every fucking influencer goes out and says, um, 32K by tomorrow, 35K yeah. by tomorrow, we're going to the moon. You know, it's always those <laughs> swings and those up and downs. You had a very good piece a couple of months ago about uh, slaying your heroes. And um, I, I feel a lot of that uh, just because, mm -hmm. you know, again, I did not know the Bitcoin ecosystem in terms of podcasters and bloggers and, and all of that. I didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. And once I did and I came to learn it, and it, it was pretty easy to see, you know, who's doing strange engagement farming tweets, you know, who basically has never tried to set up a self-custodial wallet in their life. Like you can tell who <laughs> kind of runs a node and who doesn't, you know, because you would just be a lot more humble to know that you just don't know shit. And like the protocol like keeps going and there's still stuff that I learn every day and that I try to understand. I mean, I'm not a developer, but I like computers. I like messing around with stuff. And that's how I've learned. So I mean, to your earlier point, Ian, yes, it was a lonely journey, but now, man, looking at hucksters galore, oof, it's right. tough. And I feel for, because people always ask me like, oh, if I wanted to learn about Bitcoin, you know, what, what should, what's my first thing that I should mm. watch or listen to? I really struggle. I don't think there's a single solitary thing. I, I think it's a, sort of a journey that you have to go down on your own, uh, really congruent to your own interests. You know, so if you're really into the idea of money transfer, there you go. If you're really into the idea of 
being safe from dictatorships, like there you go. I think most there's no like there are no Bibles. The only thing close to a Bible is uh, I think it's the, the book of Satoshi. Uh, I forget who wrote it, but it's just writings of Satoshi from the forums. What, what was it for you then that got you hooked on Austrian economics? Well, that's interesting. Um, so that was back in, I want to say high school. Um, I was, so I was always a bit of a weird one because I was a French Canadian immigrant in a deeply Southern North Carolina town. So <laughs> I was always a bit of an outsider and, you know, it was just, I, I, tried to fit in, you know, I used to wear a, a knife on my belt, you know, I got a hunting a camouflage hat that had the fish hook in it, you know, I had a dip can stain on the back of my jeans, even though I didn't dip. Even like that's all the stereotypes now. <laughs> <laughs> but these are true. These are true. And like, if I post this on, on uh, my, you know, dormant Facebook page, I, all these people I know from high school probably call me out. But, you know, I always, there was just something a bit different, but I really liked because at that time we had, you know, the bailouts, we had the economic crisis, 2008. Um, and before then, to me, that was just like fascinating. Like this is happening right now. None of this makes sense. There's got to be other ways. And, and that's, I remember listening to Judge Napolitano on Fox News Radio back in the day. Uh, he was a former Supreme Court justice, uh, state Supreme Court in New Jersey, who just mm. like was the, the sole libertarian on Fox. And he just started talking about Austrian e economics, Ron Paul. He talked about Peter Schiff back in those days. And he would just like mention that, you know, there are ways that the government should do things and the ways they should not. And what they're doing now, according to the tenets of Austrian economics, is incorrect. And I'm like, oh, all right, what's this all about? Mm. And that led me to this whole really strange rabbit hole. And actually, oddly enough, I moved to Austria uh, some years later. <laughs> mm. But, you know, funny enough, even as an Austrian or having spent the entirety of my life in the Dach region between Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Austrian economics is not well known oh, in no. Europe, mm, at least no. not to that it's extent alien. as it's it is alien. in the yeah, States. And, uh, yeah. my, my job that I was doing, you know, as a libertarian organizer, you know, is with Students for Liberty. That was my kind of role was to be the, the European guy who would try to educate and try to popularize many of these ideas. And yeah. The hardest place to fill a conference venue about Austrian economics was in Austria. <laughs> um, <laughs> Funnily enough. <laughs> Germany, I think very similar. Where the ideas really had pull was in the Republic of Georgia and in Bulgaria and Slovakia and the Czech Republic. I mean, Czech Republic was huge. And all of them, they felt the disaster of socialism and they kind of learned from these economists. You know, it's, it's as if all of these areas, you know, they've been savaged enough. They're ready for an alternative. And one thing that I noticed, mm. and this is still the craziest thing for me, like our counterculture in Anglo-Saxon societies tend to be Marxist purple hair people, right? That's your counterculture. That's your, you know, the man, um, you know, we're going against the man, all this kind of stuff. But in most of these countries, uh, former Soviet countries, the counterculture were young capitalists. So the counterculture mm. were younger people into markets, were into individual freedom, were about minimizing the state. And that was just the craziest environment to see stuff. Unfortunately, the, the sort of rich Western nations didn't really have that, right? Because they, they were able to live from the fruits of markets and then very much in the Josef Schumpeter model became so rich that we've essentially turned back to socialism and we're in this strange state. So... Um, it was, it was fascinating to see that Austrian economics was more popular outside, 
(laughs) Is there a resurgence? No. And it's not meant to be a worldview that you accept wholly that, you know, defines all of politics. It's merely a way of thinking. And as long as we have that and we have people who embrace it, like, you know, perhaps the next prime minister of Canada, Pierre Poliev, that that's good. I like that. Yeah. A friend of mine who is an economist always used to tell me, um, you Austrian guys are always like the dickheads of economy. <laughs> you're sort of, whatever people say, whether from the left or right, you're always the ones in the middle going, well, actually, there's like this quote from this guy or this thing by this one. Um, and I sort of would sign on this because um, I think that's a pretty good explanation for normies out there to explain what what, what kind of goes beyond that that thought process. Mm. Yeah. What I'm, inter- what I'm interested in is, is um, you being a libertarian, um, what what do you what does an ideal world look like to you as a libertarian, um, and and how does Bitcoin fit into that for you? Well, classical liberal, I, I never um, stuck too hard to the uh, the big L term, uh, mostly because of language, because you know you say libertarian right. in French and it's like totally wacko, or uh, mm. I think in German you have to say ultra liberal, right? <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it, it never worked out. So I just always liked uh, classical liberal, and I think I'll go back to my favorite thinker. That is not specifically Austrian economics, but he's very much in, I believe, that tradition. And that's Henry David Thoreau. So he okay. was um, an American thinker, writer. Um, his ideas form the basis of Martin Luther King Jr. and civil disobedience. And um, you know, for him, it was in the 1840s and he was protesting against the Mexican-American War. And when the tax man came, he said, no, hell way, I, I do not support this war and you're, there's no way you're getting any money from me. Um, he wrote a couple of weird books about, you know, living out in the woods and building cabins. Uh, but, but, you know, I think the way that the ideal world would be is you would just have a lot. And I think there are elements of classical liberal societies today. I just think it's hard to find in one country. So in Europe, we have a lot of social freedom. Alcohol, fairly permissive, 16 years old. You know, you can pretty much drink in most places. U.S. economic freedom. It's super easy to start a business, to get things, depending on your state, to start a business. Taxes are fairly low. Uh, when it comes to immigration, you know, that's something that's fairly restricted everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. Let's not talk about Switzerland. But thinking of some of these countries where they're more open to it, you know, places like Republic of Georgia, which again, I think is um, still a state that I'm very passionate about and I think gives a lot to the world um, and likely will be in the headlines in years to come when Russia invades it again. Uh, But also Estonia is really interesting. You know, they have this e-governance model and I'm, you know, an e-resident there. I'm very proud of it. And I think they do a great job. But I think there's, there's all these like elements of our freedom that exist in these other states. And that's why I didn't, I didn't think I'd bring it up, but I don't know if you guys have read Balaji's book. So now I don't mean the million dollar bet. Um, Everybody's got comments on that, but his book is called the network state just came out maybe a year ago. And he very much predicts this, this kind of ascension of Bitcoin to basically freer societies and how it will be done. And the parallels that he draws are fascinating. And, and it's another Austrian idea, but not Austrian economics. Rather, it's Zionism. So Theodor Herzl was uh, one of the founders of Zionism from Austria. And his idea was, all right, let's crowdfund as much as we can all together, we the Jews of Europe. Let's find a homeland. Let's establish our own rules and governance and live out our principles. And that's what they were able to do in Israel, agree or disagree, whatever. 
That's actually what half of Occupy was all about, by the way. Um, <laughs> so in Balaji's notion, he's like, you know, this is exactly what we can do today with BTC. This is exactly what we can do today with the cyber, cypherpunk ideas that, you know, started cryptographic coins. You can actually start this new society. And, you know, at first it's going to be online. At first, we'll all be in different chats and, you know, Noster and whatever feeds. But at some point, we'll be able to crowdsource for territory. We'll be able to gather in one place and we'll figure it out. And I think for me, it really just comes down to that element, being free to travel. And this is something that many classical liberals, it depends on where you are. Um, American libertarians and classical liberals tend to be very restrictionist on immigration, whereas many European liberals using that term correctly, are very pro-immigration. And that is, I think it's a good cleavage to have. However, if we want to have freer societies, we have to open up immigration in some way. It's got to be much easier than it is today. It cannot just be a bureaucracy that's standing up at every border to stop people from coming in. I think that is an essential element of whatever Bitcoin society will exist. Because we want to be able to gather people around ideas. And the only other country realistically, and I hate, to, I hate to be patriotic in this moment, but is the US, in which, as Thatcher said, has been based you know, on an idea rather than on blood and histories and princes. So yeah, I don't know exactly how to answer it, but I think there are elements uh, that exist out there for us right now. Because you, you see quite a lot of, I mean, in the narrative, in the news in the UK, um, you hear a lot now about immigration because they're, they're tightening mm-hmm. up um, the borders. And um, it's dividing the country, I've got to say. Um, you know, you've got strong, strong opinions on, on both sides. I'm on the side that I, you know, I'm open to free movement and, and people should go to where, you know, their, their ideology suits. Uh, and I think under Bitcoin, you see like um, like the Free Madeira project that's going on. Um, you know, as, as we start to move into a more, Bitcoinized world, um, and you hear about these citadels and things like that. There, is, there I, I see a future where there is opportunity for people to have the freedom of, you know, the choice to to migrate to areas where, um, you know, Bitcoin is um, accepted widely, and and people's ideologies can, and, and getting together to work it out and and figure out a new way um, together. Because obviously the monopoly on money, on fiat money at the moment, um, a lot of the narrative is driven for us uh, because of the corruption at the top. But under a Bitcoin um, standard, I think there's more opportunity for us to find balance and and live um, in in a way that is beneficial to all of us. Um, I don't know if I'm wearing a tinfoil hat again, Joel, but that's that's the way I see things. Well, you're not. As someone who's been through the UK immigration process, um, at times it still feels like I am. It, it is a fucking it nightmare because yeah. I think what we... Um, shit, I'm going to cut a lot of swear words again. We really have to get used to not saying it all the time. What's a mind-boggling idiotic from my perspective is, so my personal case, for example... Because I used to be a freelancer all my life, I used to run a one-person business. You may have your contractors you sometimes work with, but it was just me. I was providing for myself. It's never bothering anyone. Um, I was paying the stuff I needed to pay, and that's it. The moment you want to cross a border, which is just a line on a map um, with maybe some different jurisdictions, you suddenly get scrutinized for stuff that has nothing to do with you. 
So for example, in the UK, currently, there's not a official scheme where you can go, yep, I'm a freelancer. I'm going to fill out the, all these forms. Mm -hmm. I'm going to provide them to you. I'm going to pay for my health start and all of these things. And then I'm in, right? Um, there's so much backdooring. And I'm just wondering, even if a Bitcoin standard were to happen, would that get away? Because it is a money-making machine. It is a way mm. for institutions, for organizations, for entire industries um, to profit from it. I mean, I had to get an immigration lawyer. They were all ready in line up. You have to, you essentially have to someone in the UK or if you're in another country, you have to get um, a director into a company first, whatever. Um, there's a lot of parties involved and I'm just always struggling to see if that were to disappear because from a free market perspective, you could say again, well, it's their right to offer these services, right? Um, but yeah, it's an, it's an interesting take you brought in um, with the book from Bajal, where I, I probably have to read the book to get the full picture. Um, I've never really made that link so far. Oh, man. To see that that could be a He's, possibility. He, um, so if you've read Sovereign Individual, it's sort of an upgraded version. Um, oh, and okay. Everybody faults Bology for being, you know, Web3 Eve guy, but it realistically says like, you know, whatever those cryptocurrencies are, they fall under Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the prime, you know? So he says it's, you know, is it going to be BTC or CCP? You know, these are the two futures. Are we going to have like a dominant, you know, left socialist model? Or are we going to have, you know, crypto anarchy, freedom, Bitcoin? Um, and you know, speaking of the immigration stuff, if I can bring up one more um, strange Austrian author, <laughs> which I seem to be doing a lot, um, Stefan Zweig is one of my favorite authors. And he wrote a book, uh, The World of Yesterday, that's sort of his magnum opus towards the end of his life. And he talks about visiting both the UK, Brazil, US, and going and seeing if he could just apply for a job. And you know, he was a sort of a poet and a, and a writer, but for him, he said, the ultimate human freedom is the ability to change your setting and your location, and then fit in with the local population. Go to work if you want to. You know, be able to, to cross borders, not have to show anything, because passports, we have to remember, are only 100 years old. We only had passports because of the First World War. Before that, it was open. And yeah. I mean, there are people in America who lived their whole life without a passport. Oh, yeah. Many of, many of the people that I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, by the way, I, I do have to uh, thank you guys for being part of the podcasting 2.0 uh, ecosystem. So I will tell those of you listening, if you're on a modern podcast app, Boost. Uh, it's a good time to uh, hit Boost. Oh, um, nice. I think, I think you guys have Fountain set up, right? We certainly do. I think we have a setup from everywhere. Yeah. It should it should work. Well, I just mean it. Um, I can tell it goes to your fountain custodial wallet. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's a whole different debate. <laughs> Honestly, we had a um, I had a note set up, but then I was just like, "Fuck, launch date is getting too close. Mm -hmm. Let's just set it up on fountain." And it's not like there's an entirety of a salary or whatever in there. Um, we'll split it fifty fifty anyway, and. Um, it's actually a good bridge to get into the next talking point because I think that's a lot of what's missing in the current Bitcoin talks online. Um, we spend way too much time and energy on these things like custodial, non-custodial, where I go, well, you've got to start somewhere. And there's always a compromise with certain things. Um, but yeah, we, we should definitely look into getting the node back up yeah. and running. Um, but that's more on my side because time was short and I basically fucked up my Raspberry Pi. I, I think um, everybody... <laughs> so what, what's the easiest solution? Everybody <laughs> has done that. Like You can see mine behind me again, but don't think I don't have to fiddle with this thing at least four times a week. Um, it's definitely a lot Absolutely. of work. 
running lightning nodes is not super easy. It's very time consuming. You need to check it all the time. Um, I, I think using mini PCs is now much better. Uh, so I, yeah. I do have like a few of those that I've set up that are way better. And obviously you could set it up in the cloud like everyone else, but uh, you're not, are you really a sovereign? And there's all these different questions. Mm. I, I think, you know, I love to hear people writing about lightning and how Lightning's doing it, but it is tough and it's hard. And I'm not upset that for instance, people on Nostr, 95% of them use wallet of Satoshi. I'm not upset by that. I really am not. I think there are a, legion of um bitcoiners mostly in the privacy space you know i'd love to talk about the privacy wars between samurai and wasabi but you know there's a lot of that to where these guys are like no oh, you can't do that it's like man people start out that way they learn how it works and then they set it up but it's not as if the tools are all super easy voltage um is the easiest thing that i've seen at least in terms of setting up your own i just wanted to uh, talk about that aspect because i have a friend in switzerland who for a long time accepted lightning it was a coffee shop in zurich but then he stopped because he was like you know i had a, a mini pc running for him uh we set up a web server as well to have an online shop with btc pay server and we integrated everything more or less together he had like the setup for the uh, point of sale in the shop and the online shop but it ended up costing him at least i think 85 bucks just to get everything set up including the internet he had to pay um in store and then obviously you have the liquidity in the channels. And this is probably one of the biggest things I always get in like, I wouldn't say huge fights, but like these kind of weird debates where you're always defending yourself for pointing out an obvious fact. If we really want to make Lightning more mainstream adaptable for shops and businesses, we have to find a solution to um, solve that mm. liquidity problem. Because if you have a Bitcoin in like Lightning channels, great, you can lose Lightning. But like, your Bitcoin is in that channel. It's not in your cold right. storage. It's not lying somewhere where you can safely sleep at night. You always have that constant worry in the back of your head. Um, and again, I don't blame if there are shops who, you know, instead of um, signing up at one of these point of sale things, just downloads Wallet of Satoshi and hold it up to you if you want to pay with Lightning. What's wrong about this? That's the first step of getting them into. And all of the Lightning devs, in my opinion, should work more on adaptable solutions rather than fighting with the privacy guys. Um, but yeah, maybe we can talk about uh, the privacy stuff because you mentioned Monero earlier as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think um, for those of us who are interested in the technology, Monero at least represents something that is a tool and it's a useful tool. And, um, you know, when we think of Ross Ulbricht, when we think of many people um, like Navalny, who's the Russian opposition leader who's in jail, you know, he was able to fundraise a lot of money through Bitcoin, but they used one address and the russian government asked binance who donated to this address because they had connected it i think to binance and they got those names mm -hmm. and those people are probably rotting in jails and you know we're going to have a lot more of this we saw it with the canadian freedom convoy right and that one was unfortunate um and it is pretty public knowledge now that it was um btc sessions on youtube who like helped set it up and he had the tally coin and stuff like that. And like, I, I actually had a channel open to him at that point and I could see like his liquidity just going like <laughs> flying. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. But you know, that is in a situation to where this is like an attack vector in our lifetimes happening right now. And how did we respond? Right. You know, we, we just didn't have the solutions. It was very quick. It was kind of hard. 
you know, the ideological nature of much of the Freedom Convoy in Canada, you know, yes, Bitcoiners were involved, but it wasn't them in the beginning. So it's all things to ask about that. I think for privacy, it, it's just, you know, the government authorities are getting much smarter. And the U.S. just passed this bill last year signed by Biden that all transactions above $600, even in your little Venmo app or cash app, have to be reported to the IRS. Meaning they have the ability to track that anyway, but now they're going to lower that threshold of what they're looking at to include 600 buck payments, which, you know, you pay your mover, you pay your you know, you pay for a big meal. I mean, any everyone has sold something on Facebook Marketplace at one point. You get quickly to 600 bucks within 12 months. Yeah. You have all your old Xbox and games and, you know, your wife is telling you you got to get rid of it. And you do. But <laughs> I, I think <laughs> for the privacy stuff, you know, it's interesting because a lot, a lot of it is really about constant doom thinking, right? It's always about preparing, you know, what could happen, worst case scenario. And a lot of people are very wedded to that. And I think these people are incredibly important and they should be there because they're there for our worst days. But if they lose their reputation in the process or they just lose all public opinion and everybody just thinks they're jerks, they're not going to turn to you in that moment of, <laughs> of need. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, I, I think, what, what's kind of difficult to that. I think a lot of the tools of privacy are getting way better. They're very fun. Mm -hmm. um, I want to see much more BIP47 implementations, payment codes. I'd love to see that. I think it's great. And of course, what happened the second an iOS wallet launched one, everybody said, well, that wallet's got a bunch <laughs> of shit coins on there. We can't use that. It's a stack wallet, which I found was the dumbest response. Because like, here's an, an app, like a wallet that's your own, that gives you a seed phrase, that has actually implemented something that people have been wanting for years. And your complaint is they have Litecoin on there too. <sighs> it's unfortunate. Yeah especially my experience with a lot of the privacy guys is because obviously I'm very public with my name. I've always been, I've never been one of the Anon people. I've tried, I failed miserably. Um, <laughs> because just at one point I get so fed up with responses that I like out myself. <laughs> but I've, I've always felt there are private things which you can keep private, whether that be with using end-to-end um, -end encryption in messaging or also in the Bitcoin landscape. And I never understood the arguments um, what would be a good example? Ah, I've got a very good one. Very privacy-focused Bitcoin friend. Only does privacy stuff for Bitcoin. And I got a friend who's doing a couple of altcoins. He also gets Bitcoin, but he's interested in the whole trading and making a quick buck thing. Um, but he then asked him, like, okay, I'm just thinking of privatizing my Bitcoin stack a bit more, like... Um, I've been selling it to a friend. He's been then converting it to Lightning. We've been transacting back and forth a bit. Is that private enough? And I was like, well, it's not a bad start, but there's a lot of stuff you can obviously get public information from channels and such. Um, maybe look into coin joining and all of these things. And my privacy friend in that group went like, oh yeah, just use Wasabi. That's good enough. And I sort of went, well, if you're a privacy guy, aren't you like trusting this centralized state again which i know there are a lot of discussions with wasabi but isn't that also part of the problem like you just tell him just use that that's good enough don't trust verify forget about that stuff um instead of sitting down with him and going like hey okay here are the options you can use wasabi for example mm -hmm. to do this and that you can coin join through um sparrow 
Um, you can set up your own node, you can use Samurai and all of these different things. Um, where I sometimes feel that it is very fashionable to be in these camps with Bitcoin, but then never actually end the thought process of what these camps are really passionate about or what the overall goal is. Um, but you mentioned Samurai Wasabi before, uh, Yael. So what's the story there you would like to talk about? Oh, no, I mean... Um... <laughs> I, I obviously I've got my my paynim up my custom one by the way plus yael, um so I I do, I do, use it or it's on my phone yeah, <laughs> who's listening um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go with the private yeah, software. <laughs> yeah. And look I I think I think it's very good and I I really appreciate the efforts that Max has done and you know Max is not far away I think he's in Prague and. You know, he's been doing a lot of great stuff. He does a lot of things for podcasting 2.0, by the way. And I try to be very helpful there too um, in, in that project. But, you know, every step that you can take, I think, is a lot better. I think people need to know the risks and just figuring out. I think you can actually be very private by just creating different wallets, making sure you catch your inputs, be sure you know where stuff is going, and just think about it more. You know, we think about it with our own accounts. You know, we're not going to put everything on that Revolut. You know, we're not going to put everything in this one account. So I think if people just adopt that measure, it's good. But just get people thinking about it. And unfortunately, when the privacy guys go at war, it turns people off to that. And they become very opposed to certain tools. But, you know, I use the Wasabi 2.0. I think it looks really cool and interesting. And of course, they got a centralized administrator who's black, you know, blacklisting. What? Mm. Sure. But, you know, if you clean up your UTXOs beforehand, you know, is there... An issue. I'm not sure that's for people to to kind of take, but you know, I think people should use the tools that are you know most necessary for them. Um, I I think that the way that it is going, unfortunately, is just turning off a lot of people. And it's yeah. good that you know a lot of Bitcoiners in real life. You know, a lot of people don't have that, um, don't have a community mm -hmm. that they can turn to where they can discuss mm -hmm. this stuff openly. It's always you know online, and we know what that's like. So I, that at least is good. I am trying to teach certain people, but most of the time, just teaching them how to set up multiple wallets is like something completely alien too. So baby steps. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to discuss before we round up the episode is um, MPR. Do you want to... Um, <laughs> he just drops it. I'm just going to um, leave I'm just gonna leave that there and let just, it... Uh, <laughs> leave it fomenting. Leave it, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so... Similar to similar to NPR. All right, let me let me make a, let me make I'll make a Bitcoin connection. Mm. So there's a lot of things that you know influencers get very upset about online and um, make certain claims and all this. And you know what's happening with NPR is just that look, people don't trust media. NPR happens to be pretty woke, pretty left. It's pretty terrible. Um, when you turn on the radio, it's always about you know the disabled black jogger that's doing this, and you know what does it mean for her sexuality. That's the majority of NPR programming. It's a lot about climate change stuff. And it's a leftist thing. And it is true. They get their money from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting in the US. And there's that. Whatever. They get a label. That's fine. Elon, do your thing. Uh, but I think with you know, that, this whole, the whole aspect about journalism is one that I've dealt with a lot. I deal with this mm -hmm. question because I've been a journalist. Um, written for mainstream news outlets and, you know, your cranky online media. And, you know, my interactions that I've had with mainstream journos, and I use that term expressly, mm -hmm. uh, has usually been very poor. And every interaction that I've had with mm -hmm. 
you know, I've been told that I'm an activist because I, quote, have an opinion. And I had a one interaction <laughs> with a particular reporter that I won't name, but she was at New York Times health chief, like health reporter chief person. Right. And we were at a conference in Switzerland. Um, you know, I was able to gain access to that because... Oh, I think I know which one. Yeah, could be. Mm, okay. So I'm, I'm a journalist. <laughs> I, I, I have my... Again, we don't have bad journalist badges in the U.S. because it's a free country and we have a First Amendment. But, you know, I had whatever badge I needed. And I asked questions of the functionaries and the dignitaries who were the head of this event. And the New York Times reporter proceeded to try to kick me out uh, because I was, quote, an <laughs> activist journalist. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? She goes, oh, well, you, you've got this opinion and doing that. I'm like, well, OK, well, do you think Julian Assange is like an activist journalist? She goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I, I, you saw this kind of segmented thing to where we are the news, you are not. And it's this democratization yeah. of information that today is happening on Substack, today is happening on podcasts. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we have uncensorable podcast indexes, indices like podcastindex.org, like podcasting 2.0. It means that people are freely able to speak. We're not going to be censored by the Apple store or whatever. You know, there are new technologies that are existing. And that is great. So that is like a positive move. It's something that we see. And how does that kind of relate to Bitcoin? There's a recent thing on the theme of influencers messing things up. Uh, there's this program that has been launched in the US called FedNow. So you've probably seen like mm -hmm. people talking about this. And it's, it's the easy clickbait thing to say, well, this is the CBC, CDBC, everybody. This is what, what's going to happen. Looks like it's the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to invest in Bitcoin. Invest in Bitcoin. And uh, that's Trudeau, by the way. And how the fuck do you do these sounds? <laughs> do you have like a soundboard or whatever? Of course he does. <laughs> very, very, very bad. But he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to Bitcoin. Yes, <laughs> I do. I really didn't love it. <laughs> we're podcasting professionals. Uh, so no, we are not. <laughs> so the thing is like Fed now, you know, everyone says, well, this is just CDC. This is a CBDC. You know, everybody does it. Clicks. You know, I read through the thing twice and I'm like, well, it sounds mm -hmm. like SEPA instant in Europe, or it, it yeah. sounds like uh, e-interact in Canada, which we've had for over a decade, um, just sounds like they're trying to catch up to the times of like 2010, uh, not trying to instill, you know, tyranny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got a lot of pushback and a lot of influencers have been making Same. the opposite point and have led to bad policy decisions that have lawmakers and governors vetoing law. And mm -hmm. it's really bad. And <laughs> You know, this is not just something confined to Twitter. It's actually affecting real life. And I'm seeing that happen more and more. And, you know, in my own work, I try to be honest and fastidious, but hell, maybe I should just go all in and do all caps and rainbow charts. And, you know, maybe then I'll, I'll get the, the following <laughs> I deserve. Eh? I mean, that's sort of the things um, I'm just thinking what led to me typing my Slay Your Heroes article. I think it was a mix out of different things as well. Um, because now that I've mentioned my article the second time, because y'all mentioned it before, I can link it in the show notes, which is always good. Um, I think back then the discussion started that possibly in the summertime CBDC could come. And I sort of read through it as well. I was like, well, America doesn't have real-time money settlements. You do have them through like Cash App, but you just pay a premium. And if you worked in like the fintech world, you know that there's a, been a big push for the past eight years, I would say, to get that into um, essentially the Fed, but they just always rejected it. 
and now they sort of came up with this doesn't mean that it's not maybe the first idea they had when they implemented it going well we could maybe split off later on and use it but it's definitely not the cbdc as they imagine it um and i just see a lot of that narrative again being pushed from a particular group in america which is a big influence in the bitcoin space um and it's easy to get picked up on social because everyone is using the monkey brains and you know retweeting and reposting and resharing it um and again we, we spoke about npr before we spoke about elon what i really miss in the bitcoin community is jack for example used to run twitter he used to be the guy that did the censorship he used to be the guy letting three letter agencies in which i think is not a it's not a secret anymore. It happened way before that, if you watch the Snowden leaks. But, but he was part of the problem. And now just because he's a Bitcoiner, suddenly he turned good. Because you know, so I think jail. there's a lot well, hold of... Hold on, hold on. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a good point. So he, he went on this Joe Rogan episode. and uh, Yeah, he, with, with Tim Pool, the one... Yeah, so he, well, the first one was just Jack on his own. And Joe Rogan, like he got, he got the script, like he got the notes and he, he was like, what happened to this guy and this guy? And he's like, you know, I don't have the information mm. on those accounts. Jack was exactly who you picture him to be the tech bro at the top mm-hmm. who zoned out when it came to legal meetings and like everything else. And I think that's the guy that exists today, you know, in Noster and whatever he's doing at Square. So I think this is unfortunately what happens when you create, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that are huge. You have to hire a bunch of people. Your trusted circle, you know, doesn't really grow. You know, it stays to four or five people and you have to hire out of that. And then those people end up being lawyers and they just make a bunch of decisions, but you just don't have time. I think he definitely prioritizes time poorly. You know, he was meditating in Africa when he should, he should, he should have been doing the stuff. But I think he learned his lesson. He hasn't really done a full scale apology. He had like a note on Noster. I want to say about two months ago, where he gave his his thoughts on the sort of Twitter files to where he's like, you know, this is where we want the internet to go. You know, I did not, we did not create Twitter for that purpose, but it became too much of a beast. Like, so that that's like the closest he got to an apology, kind of. Yeah, but you know that the inner, the, maybe the former journal and me then goes, but there are people who stand up for their principle. Julian is the perfect example for this. He rots for four years in jail in solitary confinement. Okay, he's been made an example out of it, but still, he left Twitter, came back, and in my head, it goes, at least you could have stand up at that moment. Because I think that was also when he became more public about Bitcoin. It was always be around that he was a Bitcoiner, but not like full on. And um, when he returned as the second um, time as the CEO of Twitter, there was certainly more... Um, more encouragement from his side. Um, but yeah, that is sort of the state where I sometimes think in the Bitcoin scene, I think everyone can agree that he now tries his best with Block or whatever the company is called. Um, but you always have that, oh, okay, just because they're a Bitcoiner, they're the good guy. Or, you know, just because they approve of that messaging we do, that's Slayer good. heroes. Um, yeah, yeah you, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And you never really go down that rabbit hole of, okay, who's actually financing whom? Um, is there really a claim to back these things up? Um, is there maybe a mistake in the room? Like I would argue a lot of the sailor tweets you would need to delete because there is a lot of misinformation in his stuff as well. Um, 
and I think that's sort of the one thing we as a Bitcoin community or as a space, as a ecosystem, not to mention space, no, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> should pick up a bit better. Um, yeah, but I just want to leave it at that because otherwise we'll extend the episode way too long. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. And and by the way, Peter Rizzo, um, Bitcoin Magazine has this great, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the question of who Satoshi is. He says, mm-hmm. I I take uh, an interest in just making the claim that it's probably Julian Assange. And just for convenience, that's what I think. And it, it's more interesting than anything else, which I really like. Because mm. it's like, look, we're not mm. investigated further. Julian, like the WikiLeaks stuff for me was like, it was an awakening moment to see all of this happening. And it's like, and we even have it today with these Pentagon leaks, by the way. Um, I'm already mm-hmm. getting dinged probably by the government, but I've been looking for these leaked documents you know, tour. I've searched everywhere. I can't find them. Um, so, you know, we've got a lot of lackeys who are in journalism. And the problem with journalism right now is people have establishment bias. And something, someone like Julian, you know, he bucked the trend. And hell, maybe he bucked the trend with Bitcoin too. Who knows? Speaking of that, can I ask you guys a question before the podcast wraps? Yeah, yeah, of course. So mm-hmm. we, we had, we've mentioned it in passing a little bit, but I'm interested because I have my foot in both worlds. You know, I can claim mm-hmm. to be. American or Canadian or European anytime I want. So in terms of how Bitcoin is growing, um, you know, it's growing up as a mature asset uh, between the US and Europe and the role of the community um, between these countries, you know, what do you think of that? Because I think you guys are uh, both now UK, as far as I understand, uh, you know, you kind of see things a bit differently. I just wonder what, what is it? Oh, there goes those Yanks again. You know, is there this kind of aspect where a lot of things are being monopolized? Because that is one reason why we started to fix the money is that, you know, Nico's Austrian. You know, I, I live here. We want to have a different approach from like DC and US stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that. I'll let you answer first, Ian. <sighs> it's a difficult one to answer um, succinctly. But um, I think with, with in Europe, we. Uh, we aren't as uh, um, loud and abrupt about uh, things, um, you know, it's in the American culture, right? Um, in in being sort of like out there and um, wearing their hearts on their sleeves and saying it as, a, as it is. I think um, in the UK, um, there's this whole culture of sort of um, keep calm and carry on. It's ingrained in our culture. And I think that comes from... Uh, a dark place to be honest I think that comes from a place of sort of um, being this sort of center of the world major sort of um, colonizer and back in the day monopolizing on everything and everyone and um, I think that has generated a whole um, country of people who feel that they're somewhat superior in Europe and I think that's where the UK and the rest of Europe sort of tend to have friction because of some sort of historic um, kind of battles and um, beef that that we've had but in terms of Bitcoin um, it's quite a, a quiet um, thing over in the UK it's not it's not huge I've I'm sure you would agree with that, Joel, right? But I think there's more and more people coming coming over to the orange side now. Um, there's a big Bitcoin um, population, I think, in Edinburgh. Um, the London Bitcoin meetups are getting more and more busy. So there's definitely um, a growing number of Bitcoiners. 
over here. But in terms of the difference between America, I think there's there's a particular um, I, I'm hesitating to say swan <laughs> um, in this because Fuck yeah, because. It. Dead allowed us yeah, anyway. I Let's mean, call them we, out. For my it. issue with Swan is that they seem to be capitalizing on everything Bitcoin uh, over in America, um, and I'm conscious of about how much people, how many people in in America who are influencers in the Bitcoin space are now members of Swan, and I'm just worried about the how that's becoming more of a, a centralized ideology around Swan. Um, so that's that's where I think um, I'm at with it, Joel. So first of all, I, I see the whole UK thing a bit differently, but again, I'm a bit younger than Ian. Um, I've always had pleasant experiences, so I've never had the experience of people feeling bad for having colonism and all of these things. Um, but what I do feel is there's a lot of underground stuff happening. So if you look to Germany, I think Germany has either the second most or the most nodes running in the world, if I'm well, not mistaken. clear net nodes. There's always a big debate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the Germans again by the GDPR they're very official <laughs> um, no but I think there's a lot of underground stuff happening and from what I've seen in the UK especially I think the scene is bigger than what we expect but it's almost too decentralized where you like leave London to go to Richmond for example then you go like oh there are 25 Bitcoiners here why haven't you guys never been at like the London meetup, which is for the American listeners about a 45 minute drive into London. And they go like, yeah, you know, it's far. We might miss the last train. So I think there's a lot of that stuff happening in Europe. And it's ironic that we always read stay humble stack sets from American influencers, because I feel that is the big attitude in Europe. We really are humble and we don't really like to be too loud in terms of Bitcoin adoption and like trying to orange pill every minute on the internet so i think that is the clear distinction there and to the point that ian brought up um a lot of people who meet me at the meetups i am very critical of the the swans of the world of these and um, even to an extent the block streams of the world because for all of the past currency movements ideologies centralized institutions were always the point of failure so that is the one thing i worry a bit in europe if that were to happen, let's say like huge Bitcoin think tank opens and somehow it attracts talent and it gets paid and whatever, um, if that could be sort of the downfall to it all. Um, but I think we're safe because like we are so underground, decentralized in that manner between the countries as well, um, that I see a lot of stuff really happening um, in these communities and we don't have the huge voices out there who like to brag about their Bitcoin life on social media. Well, if you guys are sort of the- going anti-Swan Force, um, I will say that the the Texas mining um, situation that's been brought up, and again, it's it's been made mm-hmm. as if this is the Bitcoin protocol's final moment, right? And yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've heard this in a couple of like Twitter spaces of Bitcoin Europeans and stuff, and they're like, bro, do you think America is the world? And I, I think that's true <laughs> to some extent. We also cannot conflate the interest of a decentralized protocol with the interest of commercial businesses that have taken risks, that are on stock exchanges, that have stockholders. Mm-hmm. And right. yes, mining is important and should be defended. Um, but we should not mistake the importance of mining, of hashing, of you know what 
the entire mechanism, the technology, the machines, we cannot mistake protecting that for protecting certain companies and individuals who, as we know, are paying themselves off a lot. And, you know, <laughs> the times were pretty tough about a year ago, and we saw a lot of very hostile actions. So that is one thing that I think is very true, Joette, of what you mentioned, is that Europe is much more decentralized. You know, there is no, there is no EU there is no European capital. You know, there happen to be many countries living together, you know, in the exchange and you don't have borders, but, you know, there's still a mentality difference. And I think that's what makes Europe beautiful. That's why I like traveling across Europe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I normally don't do conferences, but I will be at BTC Prague um, in June. We'll see you nice. going there. <laughs> Great. So you're not going to the Innsbruck one? Um, I'm not. So I, you know, I've been to a few meetups um, here in Vienna. Um, mm. A lot of them just tend to be like super fully in German, which again, I'm not opposed to. I can speak and understand. And it's just that, you know, it racks my brain after I'm on my fourth language now. And like German is very different from, you know, the romance languages. So after a day of listening to German, I sometimes need to uh, decompress with a, mm -hmm. with a nice episode of um, the rabbit hole stories. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, before we wrap it up, is there anything more you would like to add to the episode or a final thought for the listeners? Well, I'd love uh, once podcasting 2.0 gets uh, more advanced to add my pub key to the splits, uh, but we don't have that yet on a per episode basis. They're working on it. Um, but I would say if you're listening to this on YouTube, um, do try a modern podcast app, podcastapps.com. <laughs> uh, things like Podverse and uh, Fountain are great. Um, I've been an adherent of this from the very beginning. I think it's awesome. I love the guys who are programming it. They've been a big help to me. Uh, so I would say do that. Uh, you know, follow policy questions and debates about Bitcoin and how, how it works. Um, the US crypto scene is mo mostly run at the policy level by many centralized coin companies. And you know, I've, I do lobbying and I work in these circles and they spend a lot of money um, to try to get certain laws passed. And we have to be very cognizant of that. And that has already happened in the UK to a great extent. And I have more stories I can tell offline about that. <laughs> but, you know, follow these debates and, you know, make the case. You know, there's a decentralized digital cash that's right in front of us that people can use. And I think the bigger concern should be, do people have access to on and off ramps? And, you know, how accessible are they? So thank God for things like Peach Bitcoin and hodl hodl and robosats and all these others that people can use uh, because people like me who are immigrants foreigners have different citizenships it's difficult usually for us to pass a lot of these verifications so thankfully peer-to-peer -peer is there i would say that and um yeah i'm you know i don't do bitcoin as my full-time job um i'm really it's really only the last two years that i paid this much attention in my off hours when my kids are asleep to where i can try to participate in some way. So um, if you are interested in some policy stuff, I am writing at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and um, my own work at Consumer Choice Center. You know, I'm doing consumer lobbying, so protecting your right to uh, vape and uh, use nicotine pouches and have free markets for cannabis and uh, cheap healthcare and everything else. But uh, there you go, peace sign. So um, I'm pretty busy with that. But yeah, man, I, anything that I can do, I, I hope I can just... Um, contribute a little bit to the great decentralized project that we have. You know, that's sort of my only goal because I know it'll benefit me. It'll benefit my children. It'll benefit you know, everyone in my life. So that's, that's really my only goal. Um, you know, 
I'd rather have Bitcoin succeed than you know whatever my fiat bags uh, will be. <laughs> whatever those fiat bags will be, whether it's the euro or the uh, the new right. IMF coin or something. Mm. God. <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting us down your rabbit hole. It's been a fascinating journey and um, hope to um, see you at Prague and you're more than welcome to come back on the show at any time. Uh, you're now a friend of the show. So thank you once again. Perfect. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you in Prague and uh, forever in my rabbit hole. Ciao, ciao.